All right, we are jumping back into our study in 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians. And as you're turning there, I want to mention that we will actually be camping out in chapter 13 for several more weeks before we move on to the last couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. You'll notice in chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, that the Apostle Paul rattles off 15 descriptions of love. But rather than just flying by and looking at these verses from a bird's eye view, 10,000 feet up, I wanted to take some time to dig into these specific characteristics of love. Of course, when we look at very specific and and granular trees in the forest, we run the risk of losing sight of the forest itself. There's a danger to picking apart each phrase and word in verses 4 to 7 because we can easily lose sight of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And it's also not how the Apostle Paul intended for this passage to be read. But I think that slowing down just a little bit to capture every facet and nuance of love will actually help us grow to be a high school group who loves like God loves. I'm hoping that by spending several more weeks to look at the specific parts of love, our love for others and our love for God will be enriched and mature with greater depth. As we dive deeper and deeper into each facet of love, we dive deeper and deeper into the very heart of God for his people. And so for this evening and the upcoming messages, we will read all of chapter 13 just for the broader context, but in tonight's message in particular, we'll only be studying the first half of verse 4. And so that being said, let's let's read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together. Verse 1 of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but now, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of our Lord. Have you ever ghosted anyone before? Or maybe have you been ghosted? I thought I'd start by sharing with you a personal story between me and a good friend of mine. I have a good friend who was interested in dating someone and before asking her out, he had asked for my honest thoughts and if I had any reservations about the girl that he was interested in dating. And I did have reservations. But since he was asking and soliciting for my thoughts and opinions, I gave them. I'll spare you the details of what I shared, but I basically said it wasn't a good idea. But he humbly received it and thanked me for sharing. Not too long after the conversation, he tells me that they had already been getting to know each other, texting each other, going on dates. And I knew I couldn't make his decisions for him. And I knew that giving someone advice and counsel meant that they very well could reject it as well. But despite all of this, I was still disappointed. And perhaps the most disappointing and frustrating thing was that my friend had a history of seeking out advice and counsel from me and others only for it to be unheeded. Do you know of anyone in your life like this? someone who doesn't really listen. 
I mean, it's understandable if someone didn't listen to your unsolicited thoughts and opinions, but it's a little less understandable if the same person who didn't really listen was also the same person who asked for your honest thoughts and opinions. I mean, why did they ask in the first place then if they weren't going to listen at all? Do you know of anyone like this? Someone who has a track record of making silly mistakes and sometimes foolish decisions. Someone who doesn't really fit with your expectations about how, how a person should make life choices and decisions. Someone who just does, does things differently. You know, going back to my friend, my friend's approach to this relationship really bothered me, unlike all of his previous relationships. And in light of my disappointments and frustrations, being the good friend and pastor that I was, I slowly began to move away from him. I slowly began to remove myself from being an, an active part of his life. I no longer texted him. When he would text me, I, I wouldn't text back. I slowly ghosted my friend. And it wasn't that I hated him, at least I didn't think so at the time, but beneath the surface was another form of hatred and resentment. It was less obvious and more discreet. It was simply that I was indifferent to him because I had given up on him. Because if a, if a pastor so wise, so loving, so incredibly patient like myself could change, couldn't change his mind, then no one or nothing would. Now, I'm obviously being sarcastic, but have you ever felt like giving up on someone before? In last week's message, I had you guys write down a, a relationship, a person, a family member, a friend in your life whom you have difficulty loving, a person in your life with whom hatred, passivity, Annoyance, frustration, and even indifference are actions that we easily gravitate toward rather than love. And so over the course of our time in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to constantly have you refer back to the same person. Remember the person you had written down. Have you ever felt tempted to ghost this person or give up on this person? Maybe you already have. For some of you, this person isn't someone you can physically distance because they live under the same roof as you but you've learned how to disengage from them in more subtle and discreet ways, ignoring them, criticizing and talking behind their back, closing your door, putting headphones on. When we have given up on others, we have subtle ways of relationally disconnecting from them. If you'll remember, chapter 13 is intimately connected with chapters 12 and 14. The Apostle Paul is addressing a church that despite its giftedness and skills is full of divisions and broken relationships that despite its knowledge and freedoms is full of selfishness and idolatry. And commentators have pointed out that chapter 13 has been uniquely crafted and written to address all the ways in which this church has uniquely failed to love. Chapter 13 was written specifically for them, and chapter 13 was written specifically for us. Putting everything in its opposite in this chapter leaves us with a good description of the Corinthians' behavior and what they're exactly like. They were impatient and unkind, filled with jealousy, looking out for themselves, puffed up. They insisted on their own way. People felt like walking on eggshells around them and they were resentful, celebrating what was wrong rather than what was right. One commentator writes that rather than being a hymn glorifying how wonderful love is, this text becomes a subtle commentary on what is rotten in Corinth. But this list captures not just the rotten hearts of the Corinthians, but our own hearts as well. Because we see ourselves in this anti-hymn. It captures all of us. But by, 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 but by describing what love is, the Apostle Paul is putting hands and feet to what tangible and concrete love looks like. It looks like Jesus. 
what does tangible love look like with the person whom you have difficulty loving or with my good friend from earlier? In light of our temptations to give up, frustrations, bitterness, and annoyances with others, the Apostle Paul says that love looks like this. He says, love is patient and kind. So that brings us to our key idea for this evening. A people centered on Jesus, the Messiah, are a people who love patiently and love kindly. So the first point is that we love patiently. We are a people who love patiently. Now in the previous message, that, but just a, a verse earlier, we saw in verse 3 that love without sincerity is meaningless. But now in our passage and the following messages, the, the Apostle Paul clarifies what love is and isn't. Love isn't merely described by adjectives, but by verbs. In fact, 15 verbs to be exact. In the Greek, love is described as 15 tangible actions. In verses 4 through 7, the, the Apostle Paul isn't talking about an inner feeling or emotion of love. Rather, love is demonstrated. So it's not that love is patient, it's that love practices patience. It's not that love is kind, but that love manifests itself in kindness. In other words, love is what love does. Let's take a look at verse 4 again. Paul says, love is patient. So if we are to practice patience as an act of genuine love, it's important for us to know at least what patience means. Now, typically when we hear the word patient, we think of patience in, in more mundane terms. Like when someone at Disneyland tells us to be patient, we think of waiting for our turn in line or waiting for the person to get out of their, their Mickey Mouse car before we jump into ours. Being patient when told by our parents just means to wait and suck it up. Is this the kind of patience that the Apostle Paul is talking about? The kind of patience that we aim for while we sit in traffic or wait, wait in line outside Trader Joe's or in the drive-thru at In-N-Out. The Greek word that Paul uses literally means long-tempered. In fact, older translations of this word translated patience as long-suffering. In other places of the New Testament, the word for patience is actually also translated as forbearance. But it's actually these two words, forbearance and long-suffering, that come to define what patience is. Biblical patience is the virtue to endure and bear suffering, frustration, and even disappointment without retaliation and anger. And this is exactly what we see in who God is. Because as a Jew, what patience does the Apostle Paul know of other than the patience of God? Which brings us to the first sub-point, God's patience. Perhaps patience and love is something that we've readily come to know of God, but it's surprising where the context of God's patience shows up in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament word and the Hebrew word that was used to describe patience is literally translated long-nosed. It's a word that occurs several times in the Old Testament, but most prominently in the book of Exodus. Do you guys remember? God had seen their affliction, their pain, and their suffering in the land of Egypt. And so through Moses, God led his people Israel out of Egypt. To demonstrate his commitment to them, God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. But not long after God's covenant to love them and their covenant to love God, the Israelites craft and fashioned their own God to worship. And as they waited impatiently for Moses to come down the mountain, they fashioned a golden calf in God's place, declaring that this is the calf that delivered them out of Egypt. And while God could have wiped out Israel completely, even when judgment was clearly deserved, while he sent a plague, 
he didn't send them, so he didn't wipe them out, even though it was cle clearly what they deserved. And then in the clearest declaration of who he is, this is what God says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The patience of God is summed up in those words, slow to anger. The thing is that God's demonstration of his patience here in Exodus 34 wasn't the first time, but really one long string of his persistent patience since the beginning of time itself. If you'll remember, the uncreated God creates a world out of his own generosity and love to showcase his love and generosity to the world. Out of the overflow of his own self-love, he creates man and woman in his own image, and he gives them all that they could ever want. But they turn on him after listening to the voice of one dumb snake just one time. It's absolutely astounding that God didn't end humanity right then and there. But as we've come to find, God is patient. Despite their rebellion, God chooses to preserve his people through a man named Noah, and he saves him out of a flood. After Noah, he chooses his, his, this guy named Abraham and saves him out of a pagan land, and he chooses chooses to bless him out of his sheer generosity. He says to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. After many generations, God liberates his family out of slavery in Egypt and takes them to a land filled with milk and honey. But over time in this land, after taking them to a land filled with his abundance and provision, they go after other gods instead. Despite his persistent patience and presence, God's people to continue to rebel. God raises up a king named David, but even David, a man after God's own heart, fails. And God raises up many kings after him, but they all fail to lead their nation in obedience. Eventually, God's people are taken up into captivity and exile, and they are taken away into slavery. After several generations, one by one, God's people are released from captivity and allowed to go home. But they are only met by silence from God. Has God's patience finally run out? And it is into this kind of desperation and hopelessness that God's patience manifests itself in a very surprising way. Because for the first time ever, God's patience comes walking on two feet, clothed with flesh and bones, living among the same broken people. But even in the time of Jesus, his patience was met with rejection. In Jesus, God weeps over Jerusalem as he thinks of how patiently he had longed to bring them salvation and protection, but they refused to turn back to him. But ultimately, his patience would be met by a cross as he bore our sins, dying and rising again for those same people. And soon we realize that God's patience wasn't just one instance of patience, but really collective instances of patience that spanned generations, ultimately culminating in Jesus. At every point in Israel's history, God had every opportunity to wipe out his people, but instead, God continued to live patiently with his people. He lived among sinful, imperfect, immature human beings, offering his friendship to them while they continued to wrestle with their own radical imperfections. Despite failure after failure, idolatry after idolatry, the love of God did not let them go. Now, what is the import of all of this for us? Well, if God has been radically, generously, massively, stubbornly patient with generations of human failure, how about your life and your failures? 
that on Friday, September 4th, 2020, God has been relentlessly patient with all of us in ways that we have been completely made unaware of. That no matter how unaware, how aware you are of your own sins, shortcomings, and failures, you can assume that you are guilty of countless other things that you're unaware of. But what we find and see in God's dealings and interactions with, his, with Israel is that despite their, their failures, God does not confront us every moment we sin. If you think about it, given his breadth and depth of awareness of human failure, Jesus could have easily spent his entire ministry career either pointing out people's failures or just straight up giving up on them. Peter, what you said was dumb. Thomas, stop doubting. John, there you go again with your anger. Oh, and you, you got this wrong and that wrong. You said this wrong. In fact, you are wrong. When are you people ever going to do anything right? Surely there is enough material for Jesus to constantly criticize those around him. But that kind of person drives people away. We might even be one of those kinds of people. But if you read through the Gospels, never once do you get the impression that people could barely stand to be around Jesus. Instead, they swarmed to him, not because he was a people pleaser. Jesus was not soft on sin. He did correct and point it out, but he didn't do so constantly. Certainly not to the extent that it was present all around him. He wasn't prickly nor critical, but patiently lived among his people. Which is the reason why the Apostle Paul reminds us that love is patient. I mean, who is love incarnate? Who is patience incarnate? Well, it was Jesus himself. In fact, the late Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse by saying that love never gives up. Did you ever get the sense that Jesus gave up on people in the Gospels? A patient love is a kind of love that hangs in there with people over the long haul as we help them sort out the challenges and difficulties of their lives. This is what we saw in Jesus himself. So as we read, love is patient, before we consider how to patiently love others, we must read this verse, this verse first, how Jesus has been patient with us. In fact, in order to be patient with others, it isn't just that God is far more patient with us than we are with others. The power to love others patiently actually stems from the great reality that God is far more patient with us than we are with ourselves. When we are slow to change, when we want to change quickly, when we are still stuck on the same old pattern of idolatry and sin, God is patient with us still. So if you want to know how to warp speed the Christian life, would it surprise you that I told you that God's choicest tools to accelerate your spiritual growth is personal suffering? difficult people, and even slow relationships. What this shows us is that you can't short-circuit or cut corners on character, the cultivation of patience and love, and even wisdom. There is no two-speed option on your spiritual growth. In reality, God's work in us is more like planting seeds, tilling the soil of our hearts and waiting for its harvest, moving at the slow pace of sowing and reaping. So maybe we should learn to measure progress in the Christian life in years instead of hours, decades instead of days. This seems to be the clock that God uses throughout history in his dealings with his people, and the same clock that he continues to use with you and me. So that brings us to our patience, the second sub-point. As people who have been changed by the patient love of God in Jesus Christ, we become people who embody and live out that same patient love. How? Well, at this point, I want you guys to recall the difficult person I had you guys write down from last week's message. What does patient love look like with this person? 
in light of God's patient love for you and me, what does, this, what does it mean to practically, specifically, intangibly, and patiently love this person? What does loving patiently, practically, and actually mean and look like in my life and in my relationship with others? The first is that loving patiently grows in proportion to your need of it. Why does Jesus call us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Does Jesus mean that only when we love ourselves can we effectively love our neighbor? What Jesus is getting at really in the call to love our neighbor as ourselves is to treat others how we ourselves want to be treated. If we don't want others being impatient with us, why should we be impatient with others? Why do we choose to be hard on others while expecting others to be easy on us? The kindness and patience that we extend to others is the same kind of kindness and patience that we hope others would extend to us. I mean, imagine if you were treated the same way you treat others. Would you like it if you were ghosted by people that you thought you trusted? How would you feel if the same exasperation that you feel for others was now directed toward you? What if you were the subject of gossip, frustration, and annoyance? And it's for this reason that theologian N.T. Wright points out that we applaud patience, but prefer it to be a, pa- a virtue that others possess. Living patient, loving patiently first requires that we look at ourselves in the mirror and have the self-awareness to see that we are just as difficult to love as the other person. That the struggles that we face aren't differences in kind with the struggles that others face, but really rather degrees. You know, if you think about the person that you had written down, think of all the reasons why this person makes it difficult for you to be patient. Maybe it's because they don't listen to you. They keep messing up. Maybe they're slow to change. Maybe they just don't get it. You keep telling them to stop doing something and they still keep doing it. Maybe they get on your nerves. Maybe they've talked behind your back. Maybe you seem to give a lot of a lot in the relationship while they seem to give very little. You know, as you think about it and list all the different reasons, could there be a possibility of seeing yourself doing these similar things in another friendship or relationship? As we ponder the possibility, we come to realize that the struggles that we face and that this person faces aren't a matter of kinds of struggle, but really degrees of struggle. Should it surprise us that our patience with others seems to run dry when we fail to see what makes it difficult for others to be patient with us? As we consider loving patiently with the person that you had written down, you might be wondering, how could God do this? How could God call us to love, to be patient, to willingly and choose to endure wrong, to put up with the weaknesses and failures of this person? Doesn't God know how hard it is to love people who violate our love, people who betray our love, people who take advantage of our love, people who ignore our love? Of course God does. Just look at the cross. In God calling us to love our enemies, to be patient with difficult people, God is showing us that every step that we are called to take toward the person that we find difficult to love, God is showing us every step that he took toward us in Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Jesus, God never calls us to do something that he never does himself. God never calls us to get our hands hands and feet dirty without first getting his hands and feet dirty himself. God was not above the call to love our, our enemies. He stepped into the call by dying for his enemies. The call to, to love difficult people, sinful people, annoying people, ridiculous people, foolish people is a lifelong object lesson to demonstrate the depths that God took to patiently love you. Anyone can say that they know the patient love of God, but it is only in our obedience to love 
our choice to love, our commitment to love, our endurance to love, that we understand more deeply than we ever would have God's limitless and boundless love for us. Patiently loving others is a lot like how God patiently loves us. Our patience with others is the test by which we have understood the patient love of God in a merely theoretical way or in a truly personal way. When we consider how hard it is to be patient with others, take a good look at the cross because there we'll find and remember how hard it was for God to love us. You know, the phrase, I've run out of of patience with you is misleading because it invites us to think of patience like a mineral deposit. Like once you mine it out and exhaust all of the mineral from the ground, it's gone. But instead, I want you guys to think of patience like an organic resource that grows in proportion to your need of it. That as we turn to the patient Jesus, we find our spent patience with others replenished. So how can our patience with others run empty when Jesus patiently gave, gave, and gave? The second way is that loving patiently is better than judgment. Loving patiently is better than judgment. Like I mentioned earlier, we tend to think of patience as the goal we aim toward when we sit in traffic or waiting for boba when you forget to order it online or waiting for your boba to get remade because the person messed up your order or learning to live with the mediocrity of doing distance learning school. But when scripture uses the word patient, it refers to the act of bearing with the faults, sufferings, and disappointments with others in such a way that we wrap ourselves around the other person's weaknesses. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Patience in our relationships with others has to do with how we respond to unmet expectations, even when those expectations were completely reasonable and fair. For this reason, patience is decidedly different than merely putting up with the faults of others, as if we put up with the faults and annoyances of our younger siblings. How could it be? Did God and Jesus Christ merely put up with us? You see, the call to be patient with others sounds more like, I love you. Therefore, I mold myself around your weaknesses so that you grow strong enough for the things God has called and gifted you to do. There will always be people weaker than us and people who will be stronger than us. Weaker and stronger in terms of personal strengths, abilities, and capabilities. This means that we wrap ourselves around the weak in the same way that those stronger would wrap themselves around us. Patience is far from merely putting up with others. Patience is far more constructive. Patience is helping others grow to come alongside those who struggle and to continue to help them when they fail. And when we take patience in this way, we come to understand that patience is costly. It's the willingness to work with people who operate on a different speed as us, whether faster or slower. It's the willingness to work with people who who just don't seem to get it or those who take longer to change. Patience is absorbing the cost of how time-consuming it will be to talk with others, taking the blow of the other person, covering the frustrations that we experience with another person, taking the unmet expectations that we have experienced with the other person, and to refuse to treat the other person how they deserve, even when those expectations were reasonable and fair, even though your treatment of the other person might have been fair. When we realize the price of patience, then we actually come to understand the point of patience. The point of patience is that it is deeply merciful and forgiving. 
Loving patiently is actually acting mercifully, to not treat people according to how they deserve to be treated. But when we look at patience in this way, we come, to pa- we come to find that patience isn't a celebrated virtue of our day, but really a sign of weakness. As we come to think of patience, patience is actually a distinctly Christian virtue. During the time of the Apostle Paul in Corinthian culture, patience wasn't celebrated. Vengeance was. Retaliation was. It was tooth for tooth, eye for an eye. A non-retaliating kind of patience was considered a sign of great weakness. The philosopher Aristotle once wrote that the great Greek virtue was that was the, the refusal to tolerate an insult or injury and to strike back at the slightest offense. But this isn't only a virtue celebrated back then, but a virtue that is still celebrated today. We celebrate justice and, and rightly so. God is a God of justice. We need God to be a just God because we live in an absolutely just, unjust world. The passion for justice must, be, must characterize all who claim to serve a just God. One of the reasons why the, the national protests occurring across our country today is so viral is because it's te- touching a deep nerve of justice for the oppressed. It's because God absolutely cares for the oppressed, and as his image bearers, we care about what God cares about. But like all things, it's very easy for us to become unbalanced. We love instant karma. We love it when people fight back, when they retaliate. We love it when people get what they deserve. Why? Because when someone is mistreated, it's only right for there to be swift justice and retaliation. But have you ever noticed how easily justice can be corrupted by vengeance? How it was initially a desire for justice becomes a demand for wrath and and, and vengeance? I mean, think about that difficult person again in your notes. I'm sure some complaints that you have of this person were initially right and appropriate and just. It's not like we have problems with others for no reason. We're reasonable, we think to ourselves. I mean, they had wronged you, they had taken advantage of your trust. But as you continue to think about the wrongs and the frustrations and annoyances, what initially might have been right and good becomes something wrathful and vengeful. So we we fight back. We chew this other person out because they deserve to know how they wronged us. We ghost them. We treat them how they deserve to be treated. We allow our right desires for justice to become tainted and corrupted by wrath and vengeance. But what if God were to be just with every single one of us? What if God retaliated with every single one of us? Would we like justice then? We desire justice for others, but do we ever desire desire it for ourselves? We want God to treat others how they deserve, but what if God treated us how we deserve? I mean, that's fair, right? Even if you thought you were better than the other person, there's no way you've met all of God's standards. True impartial justice is everyone getting, is everyone everywhere getting what they deserve, including you and me. Justice is right. It's what's fair. But according to the, the Apostle James, mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? Because that's exactly how God has treated us. Does this mean that we shouldn't seek and long for justice? Of course we should. We should absolutely seek and long for justice. For God to uphold his righteousness and justice over the face of the earth. To long for the day when God will make all things new and right. But what the Apostle James wants us to seek equally, if not more, is that as much as we seek and long for justice, we should also seek and long for mercy. Justice is not at odds with mercy. It's not that we are lax on justice in favor of mercy. Instead, mercy is to bear the burden of injustice yourself. 
For God to be merciful means that he bears and takes on the burden of our injustices upon himself. Where does he bear and take that burden? It's on the back of Jesus Christ. What the gospel of Jesus exposes in our hearts is that it's not just the other person who has a debt to pay, but that we all do. It isn't that this other it isn't this other worse sinner. You might have a little less to pay than the other person, but the reality is that it doesn't even matter because the debt is the same before a just God. Either we cover the debt that we owe to God with our own lives in hell, or God covers it for us in Jesus Christ. Because it is on the cross that mercy and justice meet. It is in Jesus Christ that God solves the justice problem and how God solves the mercy problem. Jesus solves the the dilemma that people can be let go because he has taken what they owed to God upon himself. That's mercy. And Jesus solves the dilemma that people are let go because he has taken what God rightfully would have laid upon others, his justice. The gospel of Jesus Christ God come in Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing because God himself absorbs our debt. He absorbs the cost of our sin. This should absolutely floor us that God himself would cover our debt and pay our bill. And to love patiently, to act mercifully toward others is a small glimpse of what it means to be patiently and mercifully loved by the God whose patience and mercy will never be exhausted. The God whose love does not let us go is the same God who lets go of our debts by taking our debts upon himself. Patience, then, isn't just a nice thing to do or some nice virtue to have. No, patience lies at the heart and center of the gospel because it bears the very heart of God for us in Jesus Christ. And if we pursue this for ourselves, shouldn't we pursue it for others as well? That brings us to the third and final way. Loving patiently operates on a different speed. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, to the Apostle Paul writes that God had purposed salvation through Jesus before the ages began. And in verse 10, he writes that it, it now has been manifested through him. But let's do the math real quick. Paul is saying that God waited at least 6,000 years of human sin and failure before at the right time he would send his son to come and rescue humanity. Now, some of us might think that that's actually an incredibly inefficient use of time. God's ways with us may not seem efficient to us at all. We might even think that God is needlessly slow and inefficient. But what does that tell you about the kind of clock that God operates on? It tells us that God's love operates on a different kind of speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed that we're used to. And the reason why it is slow is because we are slow. I mean, if you think about it, God is the master of time, but the fact that God chooses to move slowly is because he accommodates to our our pace. God's love and patience accommodates to our slow pace. The theologian Karl Barth writes that God's patience is his will to allow for another space and time for the development of his or her own existence, conceding to this existence a reality side by side with his own and fulfilling his will towards the other in such a way that he does not suspend and destroy it, but accompanies and sustains it and allows it to develop in freedom. Now, there's so much to unpack in that definition, and I think some of us might have just been lost with what he said. But the point is that God slows his pace down to ours and gives us space and freedom and room to grow. And the reason why he chooses to isn't because God is a slowpoke, but because God is patiently 
accommodating. You know, one of the funny things I've found in my, my marriage with Megan is that I am incredibly slow when it comes to morning and evening hygiene. Actually, I'm pretty slow at everything else too. And I didn't realize this until Megan and I got married. So that was pretty humbling myself. But when I get up, I t- it takes me like 30 minutes to wash my face, brush my teeth, and get ready for the day. And it's even longer when we get ready for bed. Whereas Megan will get up and get ready for the day and get ready for bed the same amount of time that I will take for the morning. But because we only have one sink, we have to share and Megan has to wait. Megan is incredibly accommodating. She won't rub it in my face, not usually at least. She won't gloat over how fast she gets ready. She waits for me to finish. And this is actually kind of what we see in God. If God patiently accommodates for us, how might we patiently and lovingly accommodate for others? Perhaps one of the frustrations that we experience with others, our friends or family members, is the slow rate of change that they undergo and experience. Like it takes forever for this person to get something. But the fact that our own progress is measured in years instead of hours, decades instead of days, also means that months, years, and even decades must be the same metric that we use for measuring the growth of others. What does this practically mean? It practically means that we play the long game with others. The fact that God doesn't unload all of our problems and machine gun fire all of our faults and demonstrates that we adopt the same posture when faced with the the same glaring faults, weaknesses, and discouragements of others. If God doesn't criticize every single thing that we do wrong, why should we do that with others? Going back to the person that we've been thinking about, I feel like we should give this person a generic name. How about Karen? Anyone named Karen here? I'm just kidding, that's mean. What are the things that you find really difficult as you seek to be patient with this person? Maybe they've blatantly and obviously wronged you. They're manipulative and and unkind. They have unrealistic expectations of you as a friend. They keep wanting to hang out even though you don't really want to. Maybe there's a low-grade annoyance with this person. Maybe you see very little fruit and evidence of change in their lives. Whatever it is, what what does playing the long game look like with this person? Maybe it means valuing them as a person rather than valuing them on the basis of how fast or how slow they change. What I've come to find personally is that impatience grows and flourishes when something replaces and becomes more important than someone. This person isn't an object to conquer or an object to win over, but a person, period. And so how can I give them the space to grow and how can I actively assist in their growth? How can I encourage them? What are some praiseworthy things that the Spirit has already been doing in this person's life? I think one of the reasons why we find ourselves in patience with others is because we have refused to understand the other person. We've, we fail to see them as people. We fail to see who they are, their viewpoint, what they're saying, what they actually care about. Now, patience doesn't mean that we agree with what they think about or what they actually care about, but patience, at the very least, is the sincere desire and act to understand where they're coming from. So much impatience stems from our lack of understanding. We think to ourselves, I just don't get this person, therefore I'm impatient with them and I give up on them. So how do we solve this? Well, why don't you try to get to know them better? Try to understand who they are. If every person gave up on us because they didn't understand us, we'd have no friends. The reality is that everyone is complex, no one is simple. Patience, then, means that we wrap ourselves around their complexity. We walk with them. We pursue them. We try to understand them. And understanding someone will take time. It's okay if things are slow. 
So maybe when it's difficult, resist the desire to back away. Seek to move one step closer to the other person. Now, patience doesn't necessarily mean moving toward the other person at full throttle speed, but just as we make incremental steps and change ourselves, we make incremental steps in moving toward others. If you are spiritually mature, your maturity is not an end in itself, but really a gift for others. If you're finding that it's easier for you to change, easier to do a lot of other things in the Christian life, easier to do a lot of other things than other, than other people, the temptation is to look down on others and to wish that people were moving along as fast as you were. But with the weak, the Apostle Paul encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to help them. And so we take that call to help literally. We hold their hand. We don't ever let go of the people whose capacities are limited. They may need ongoing assistance. They can't do life by themselves. And so take the initiative to keep on helping those who are limited and even vulnerable. And when we feel like giving up, we remember the immeasurable and completely mature patience of God. God accommodated for us. We did not accommodate for God. Your maturity is meant to be a gift for others, to help them grow, to help them mature, to help them be where Jesus is. In the same way that God's patience is a gift to our slow hearts, to help us be closer to his own heart, to be where he is. Bearing patiently with your friends, your siblings, the people in this youth group brings them hope because people often find that they're not right and they know that they're not right, but they don't always have confidence that other people can help them when they're not. And so your patience extended to others can be a real gift of hope and life. This is what it means to be a family that practices patience together, extending patience to one another. Finally, I want to make a direct application to our youth servants. I love you guys, and youth ministry is the long game incarnate. Having done youth ministry now for nine years, I have yet to see the kind of progress in our youth ministry that other ministries like Beacon or Practice sees. And obviously we'll see glimmers here and there, but there's really nothing flashy about youth ministry. Sorry, kiddos. Oftentimes when we serve, it doesn't look like we're accomplishing much, especially when some of these youth forget that there's youth group at all. So don't lose hope because in due time, we will reap a harvest. As we serve these precious high schoolers, love them, bear with them, accommodate them, understand them, wrap yourselves and mold yourselves around these precious students and their strengths and weaknesses, not to smother them, not to stunt their growth, but by your patience, bring them closer to the heart of Jesus Christ, who is so incredibly patient and kind with us. And that brings us to our second and our shortest point, we love kindly. We love kindly. Now I'm pretty much out of time, but I want you guys to take a look lastly at the second characteristic of love. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Now why are patience and kindness paired together? It's because both characteristics operate as two sides of the same coin. If patience has to do with how we respond to difficult people, kindness has to do with how we approach and move toward difficult people. Kindness is the sincere and active desire and action to do a person good no matter who they are or what they've done. It is to sincerely act in such goodness that it is completely contrary to what they deserve. And so if patience is mercy, then kindness is grace. Honestly, if this youth group can be characterized as having a patient and kind presence, that at the end of my life, if God could say that this youth group was growing in patience, in kindness, 
growing, not completed patience and kindness, then that is as faithful as a minister can be. Because to borrow the words from the Apostle Paul in the verse earlier, if we have love, then we do have everything. Let me finish the story that I started in the beginning. Let me show you patience and kindness on display. In my self-righteousness, I thought that I was completely justified in ignoring my friend. Like, if he didn't want to listen to me, then whatever. Like, he lost the only wise voice in his life. And just so you guys know, I, I'm, I'm obviously being, again, sarcastic, and I'm growing myself too. But even though I thought I needed to be patient and kind to my friend, the reality was that I wasn't patient and kind to my friend at all. Rather, all along, my friend was patient and kind with me. He was the real mature one. Even though I had ghosted my friend, my friend was persistent with me. He still texted occasionally, asking how I was doing and how he could be praying for me. And when he got the hint that I was ignoring him, he gave me space and time. I had seriously given up on the friendship. I mean, like I remember telling Megan that I, had, I was okay if we wouldn't ever talk again. But randomly, after months of not talking, he texted me out of the blue, telling me that he had left a gift outside of our door. Despite my giving up on him, he had not given up on me. And he needed that. That was patience and kindness on display. Long story short, we reconciled, and while things aren't exactly the way it was before, we made new memories together. I, I still think that it was an unwise decision for him to get together with this girl, but it didn't change the fact that he was still patient and kind toward me. To be the recipient of a friend's patience and kindness is, well, a lot like being the recipient of God's patience and kindness. It's to be loved by God himself. And so as our lives are centered on Jesus, patient and kind, may our love mature to be a love that is patient, a love that is kind. Let's pray together.